I said to the people of the Philippines whence I came, I shall return. Sheboygan, I'd kill him in Sheboygan. All my friends back in my hometown, Milwaukee. Welcome to Wisconsinology. My name is Frank Anderson. Today's story is about a Wisconsin girl who reached the height of fame and became a noted international beauty in the 1930s and of a curse that seemed to follow and determine the fate of many who chose the profession of being a Ziegfeld girl. The Ziegfeld Follies was the fever dream of producer impresario Florence Ziegfeld. It was an elaborate yearly star-studded Broadway review modeled on the Follies Berger. Its large cast featured the great stage performers of the era and new hit songs were expected and always introduced. Its greatest attraction were the Ziegfeld girls. They were not chorus girls. A chorus girl's job was to sing and dance. A Ziegfeld girl was the height of American glamour. Their job in the Follies and in other Ziegfeld productions was to parade on stage in a series of constantly changing elaborate outfits, sometimes scantily clad, other times dressed in massive layered period costumes. Off stage, a Ziegfeld girl was to be seen, talked about, written up in the press, always in the latest fashion and in the company of the rich and famous. Florence Ziegfeld's productions dominated the American stage for 20 years, finally ending with the arrival of the Great Depression and the death of Florence Ziegfeld in 1931. In the late 20s, there was talk among show people and members of the press. Ziegfeld's famous showgirls were dying. They were dying young, in number, and their deaths were both spectacular and strange. Was there a curse? By 1930, everyone was asking that question. The 1930s were a brutal decade for current and former Ziegfeld girls. The decade began when Alan King, known for her auburn hair and dazzling smile, was trying to launch a comeback. She had been away from the footlights for a few years. In 1927, she suffered a breakdown and nearly died the effects of a near-starvation diet. Alan King's contract with the show required her to maintain a weight of 115 pounds with a 26-inch waist. She was hospitalized and then moved to a sanitarium. In 1929, she moved in with her aunt and uncle at their New York City apartment and once again began a routine of diet pills and exercise, although this time it was supervised by a doctor. She was trying to shed 20 pounds from her already slender frame, and she was 31 years old. Most showgirls were in their teens or early 20s. On March 29, 1930, 
Alan King jumped from the open window of her fifth floor bedroom. She died the next day. That same year, Bobby Story, only 25, and having appeared in a string of flops since leaving the Follies a few years earlier, turned on the gas valves in a friend's apartment where she was staying. She died with five cents in her purse, three coats, the clothes on her back, and a set of ragged pumps, worn out by long days of walking to and from additions. In 1931, Marion Day Barion, a former showgirl turned wealthy widow, perished in a mysterious house fire. That same year, Helen Walsh, a memorable beauty from the 1931 Follies, boarded a yacht with friends. While they were settling into the cabin, a fuel line burst and exploded. Within seconds, the entire yacht was in flames. Helen was trapped inside the cabin. The roof collapsed upon her. My face, she screamed. My face. She died in the hospital the next day. That same fire badly burned the ankles and feet of another Follies girl, dancer Virginia Biddle. It ended her career. Within weeks, Peggy Davies, the wife of an Australian millionaire residing in France, mother of two children, drank two double brandies at a local hotel, then drove her car off a 200-foot cliff. The next day, mountain climbers descended the cliff to retrieve her body. In 1932, Flo Lane, her full name Florida LaLanne, left Broadway to marry the very wealthy and handsome Morris Volk Jr. She was his fourth wife. Divorce followed, and she jumped to her death from a six-story window. Nothing unusual, as all of Morris Volk's five wives died within a few years of meeting him. 1935 brought news of the death of Jessie Reed. She died alone and broke in a hospital. The final death of this cursed decade would be its most publicized. It involved America's foremost playboy and a former Wisconsin schoolteacher. In 1938, Nina Pearson lived in a twilight of nightclubs, parties, affairs, marriage proposals. She was living in Europe. When she traveled, she was accompanied by 45 trunks filled with her clothes and personal effects. She was vivacious, a talker, a charmer, a stunning beauty, more so in person than in photographs, which, it was said, did not do her justice. In the 1920s, when Nina Pearson joined the Follies, it was at its height, and the girls were the talk of the town. They were immortalized by America's foremost glamour photographer, Alfred Cheney Johnston, and fawning over them day and night from the moment they got off stage was a retinue of wealthy politicians, European royalty in exile, heirs to great fortunes, and captains of industry. Playboy, a new word used to describe these men, snuck in the American vernacular. Foremost among this new era of sugar daddies was the much-married Tommy Manville. He was the grandson of C.B. Manville of Nina, Wisconsin. C.B. was the co-founder of the Johns Manville Corporation, manufacturers of asbestos shingles, roofing, floor covering, and insulation products. By 1938, 
Tommy was 44 years old, prematurely gray, and heir to a fortune worth over $40 million. His cultivated image as a carefree, serial-marrying millionaire was a hit with the American public during the Great Depression. They liked knowing that somewhere, someone was being frivolous, buying Duesenbergs on a whim, and spending the yearly equivalent of a working man's salary every single night. A columnist noted that Tommy Manville knew more about blonde showgirls than he'd ever know about asbestos. Tommy spotted Nina Pearson on stage in 1931. The attraction was mutual. Nina Bell Pearson was born in 1904 in Spooner, Wisconsin. She was the daughter of a Swedish immigrant. After graduation from high school at age 16, she worked various jobs, including some time as a teacher in a country school near Superior, Wisconsin. Accounts of how she got to New York City are varied. Family legend has it that she was discovered in St. Paul by America's then singing sensation, Rudy Valley. Another account has her being discovered by a different Rudy, screen idol Rudolph Valentino. Valentino was in Duluth, Minnesota, a stop on a 1923 national dance tour in which he would perform the tango, the dance that he sensationalized in the movie The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. The Rudy Valentino story puts Nina in New York City in 1924 at the age of 19. Nina loved her new life. She loved the whirl, the parties, the clubs, and especially the clothes. In 1931, Florence Ziegfeld died, and his follies came to an end. The Great Depression was in its second year. Nina Pearson was just getting started. Tommy Manville was in his usual high spirits when he met Nina. For the next seven years, he and Nina were an on-again and off-again item, always on the verge of marriage, but not quite getting there. She spent a lot of time at Tommy's New Rochelle estate. A large diamond solitaire on Nina's finger did not escape the notice of the press. It was from Tommy, she would say. We're getting married soon. From a contemporary society column, and I quote, 40 seconds after the international beauty Nina Pearson enters the zebra-striped Morocco Thursday night carrying a luminous shiner on her finger, a party of diversified personalities barges in, headed by Lady Castle Ross and including Margot Flick Hoffman, George Cukor, Enzo Fermante, and Cecil Beaton. Such was Nina's life. In 1933, Tommy married another blonde showgirl. Marcel Edwards. She was the fourth Mrs. Tommy Manville. Nina responded by marrying Paul Levitin, a seemingly wealthy Parisian who had been hanging around Broadway for some years. After a wedding ceremony in London, Nina and Paul traveled the world together. A year later, they were divorced. In 1937, Tommy and Marcel Edwards were over. Nina, having spent most of that year in Europe, triumphantly returned to New York and declared to the press that once again she and Tommy were on and that she was ready to become the fifth Mrs. Tommy Manville. In October 1937, Nina Pearson was living with Tommy Manville at his estate. A wedding seemed imminent, 
but with or without her, Tommy still enjoyed the nightlife and was still enjoying the company of new beauties. Nina and Tommy had been arguing. After one major blow-up, Tommy had the police remove Nina from his property. In 1938, she fled to Europe and lived lavishly, always in the company of the rich and famous. There were reports of marriage proposals in Europe. Nina was seen in the arms of several young millionaires. There was a quickly annulled wedding to the son of a British industrialist. There were also reports of Nina and Tommy getting back together in Europe. Summer brought a full card of parties, travel, lavish weekends at far-flung estates, and more marriage proposals, most of them quickly recanted. At summer's end, Nina was broke. Her only money, the meager remains of her divorce settlement with Paul Levitin, was long gone. Her residence in September 1938 was a suite at the King George V Hotel in Paris. Bills were piling up. She was temporarily out of benefactors and putting everything on her tab. In desperation, she wrote to Tommy Manville, asking for funds. On September 17th, a chambermaid entered her room for its daily cleaning. Nina was laying on her bed, fully dressed, beautifully composed in a, I quote, lovely afternoon frock. The chambermaid thought she was taking a nap. Nina Pearson was dead. There were some empty bottles of champagne in the room. She had been ordering champagne for breakfast for the past week. Nothing new. Nina usually had champagne for breakfast. An open packet of sleeping powder lay on her dresser. The police arrived. They went through her purse. In it, they found a British customs stamp on her passport that banned her from entering that country. Three reasons were stated. Number one was morality. Number two, drug addiction. And number three, lack of means. The death of Nina Pearson rippled across America's headlines. Nina was always good copy. Now she was a morality play. The Ziegfeld curse strikes again, they reported. Another showgirl down. A warning to young women in small towns all over America. This is what a life of gaiety will lead to. Reports of her being despondent and unhappy during the last month of her life emerged. She was chastised for drinking champagne for breakfast. Here's a piece straight off the wire, a day after her death. It reads, Death shocks New York street of playboys. New York, September 17th. Broadway was shocked to learn Saturday night of the death of gay Nina Pearson, the former Wisconsin schoolteacher who became a folly star and then vainly sought happiness in romances with wealthy men. Even blonde-loving Tommy Manville, who had police eject Nina from his mansion last October, seemed upset. Oh, I feel terrible about this, Tommy Manville said. Until she was gone, I didn't realize how much I loved her. She wrote me two weeks ago asking for financial assistance, but I didn't answer because I had no secretary at the time." Unquote. Parisian police attributed her death to natural causes, an embolism, they said. 
At the end of his life, Tommy Manville had been married 13 times to 11 women. Two were double marriages. He died in 1967. He has been the subject of books, an opera, a musical. He figures into song lyrics and continues to entertain anyone who stumbles upon his legend. Nina Pearson's ashes were turned over to her younger sister, Vinnie de Casesis of Mexico City. Vinnie Pearson was another beauty from Spooner. At the time, she was the wife of a wealthy Mexican diplomat who she had met through her sister. Vinnie placed Nina's ashes in the Hillcrest Mausoleum in Dallas, Texas. Vinnie had a long and prosperous life. She married often and she married well. When she passed away in 1999, her name was Vinnie Lorraine Pearson O'Donnell Tennyson de Eincourt. For Wisconsinology Podcast and Wisconsinology.com, I'm Frank Anderson.